Welcome to On Strategy Showcase. I'm Fergus O'Carroll in Chicago. There's been a lot of talk around marketing effectiveness uh, in the industry and on all of the social platforms that feed into it. And I've been a part of that with our show here, and I'm a strong believer in it and think it needs to be highlighted. Um, one of the things, the questions that that I hear a lot is, well, how do we get our hands around it because there's a lot of different perspectives and some of them are contradictory and it's understandable because in essence this is a this is something it's like we're building the plane while we're flying and we're learning more just like they do in medicine and science etc and so uh, sometimes it can feel like the progress that's being made can uh, make us feel like it's being contradictory or or it might have been wrong in the initial assumptions. But hey, that's just the way this works. That's the way improvement works. That's the way work that we do gets better. That's the way we get better as professionals. And um, But I think it's important to know and to become aware of some of the programs that are out there that are beginning to help uh, professionals understand these fundamentals, these sort of evidence-based principles. And uh, the Masters of Advertising Effectiveness, which I've talked about on the show a lot, and they're a sponsor of the show uh, in combination with Warwick, they do this uh, this program um, uh, called the Masters of Advertising Effectiveness. And it's delivered in 10 modules. You can learn it online. And it, uh, it really gives you a very clear evidence-based understanding of advertising effectiveness principles that allow you to sort of understand how to consistently create highly effective advertising. Uh, I've heard great things about the program from people who have attended it. You know, we've given away a a few seats on the program uh, over the last year or two. Uh, Check it out. It's a great option. I think it's only, I think it's only like $1,700 US dollars. There's a program that starts in February and you can check it out at mae.academy. That's mae.academy. Um, um, James Herman, the author James Herman and the strategist, uh, he is the one who conducts the course. And we do love having him on the show and hope to have him back on real soon. Here's a clip from today's episode. I think one of the big differences that we have um, is that there's an arrogance to having bought an audience. So every time we go out, we we buy eyeballs and we say, we bought you, therefore you have to look at our stuff. Um, I'd be quite like you to share it with other people. And every other form of modern media doesn't buy an audience, it builds one. doesn't matter whether you're on TikTok or Instagram or YouTube or YouTube Shorts. What you want people to do is hit the, the subscribe and the like, the subscribe, follow and like button. Because you want more people to tune into your content the next week. So you're acutely aware of having to entertain, maybe inform the audience that you have and of the need to build that audience, whereas we treat them as entirely disposable. We have uh, two great minds, Ed Cotton and Steve Walls. Both of these uh, guys have pedigree in the industry. They've worked at great shops over the years. And I've invited them on the show together because they're pretty prolific on social media. They're smart, intelligent, reflective people. And I like that. I like talking to people like this. And... um, we're going to be talking today, we, we kind of try to figure out what we do as a theme, and we, we, we agreed on the theme being the consequences of change. And it's not talking about, it's not a, ha- a glass half empty show. Um, these guys have got great points of view that I think can add to the way that we understand what we're doing and maybe some of the things that we could improve on in what we're doing. So um, Ed Cotton uh, also has a, a really interesting podcast called Inspiring Futures. You can check 
it out wherever you get your podcast. So here is my uh, conversation with Ed Cotton and Steve Walls. Enjoy. When I look back at my career, I think um, uh, I was never destined to be an employee. Um, the, the the culture of business and the culture of agencies um, wasn't for me. I wasn't I wasn't good at it. I got frustrated by it. I uh, I'm an I would probably describe myself as as an idealist, and that, I don't think that's always a good thing. And I, I think cultures got frustrated with me, and I got frustrated with cultures. I I, I just I couldn't deal with what I had to deal with in terms of compromise, compromising my my ideals or my principles or my beliefs when it came to strategy. Um, would would Steve? Would you describe yourself as being something similar to that? Um, because you do you you do have sort of a contrarian or alternative look at things, which I love, but it does sort of have this sense of a underlying frustration that you might have with the industry. Yeah. Uh, that's a very polite way of putting it. Thank you for that. <laughs> um, yeah. I, it's, it's weird. I got very, very lucky um, in that most of the agencies that I worked for kind of accommodated that. So I was, I was really lucky at BBH. I went, go do a brand stretch thing. You know, if you think um, all of the best ideas are stuck on the last three pages of the deck, um, and we should be selling those. Go figure out how to do it. Um, and TBWA were like, if you're frustrated with the way things that work, go create something there. So I was, I was very lucky in that I think I was positioned within agencies um, as the person that did that. Um, that that kind of internal contrarian um, and and the voice of dissatisfaction so i never quite had that kind of rubbing up against the system thing um because weirdly the system decided to accommodate me and i i don't think i appreciated it at the time as much as i should have done um where did it come from um i think it came from it's a very good question i think i think it probably came from the the thought that um I was surrounded by really smart people um, with really good thinking and they were never being asked the right questions. It was never anybody's job to answer the big question. Everybody was so busy thinking about the next quarter that they forgot the next quarter century. Um, and you kind of take a look at the briefs as they stacked up and, and you kind of look and go, you know what they're trying to solve here. Um, you know, this is a much bigger question than any of these little briefs that we're getting to to change an end frame or to put more variety in something. Why aren't we answering the bigger question? Um, and the answer was always, well, because we haven't been asked to. Um, and I think that's where my frustration came from, which was um, there's a whole there's a whole bunch of people um, being pointed at the periphery, um, and we all turned a blind eye to that to the big things that we could be doing in the middle. And, um, so where and did people, you grow up? Did you, where did, where'd you grow up? Um, I bounced, I bounced around a lot. Um, so I was born in Germany. We moved down to Africa when I was a kid. Um, and then I was in the Northeast of England. So I was in a crazy, um, I guess, public housing council estate from where I'm from, a very kind of working class town that was slowly closing down a big industrial town that was closing around us, which also made me. Um, a bit of an anomaly within within an agency because I showed up and I was I showed up and I was common 
And I didn't know that, you know, I was supposed to be ashamed of watching things on ITV and the things that other people were watching, ironically, I'd actually enjoyed. So I think for a while I was a bit of a living experiment um, in that people were like, oh, we have a we we have a common person. We have an oik within the agency. Let's go and ask him about ordinary people. <laughs> That's um, great. And um, it, it, it was a, it was a really interesting piece. I had to learn to embrace that rather than to fight it, because of course what what you really want to do is go. I'm clever, and actually it wasn't about that at all. It was like I'm I'm actually just steeped in a real appreciation for popular culture. Is, is and, part is it part of it because for me I found I've I've thought back on this like where did my where did, what's the roots of my general dissatisfaction? Where did that all come from? And and I think in part it came from the way I grew up. And that's why I ask you that question because, you know, I grew up in Dublin, Ireland. And I think for me, um, I had, I've always had this issue with authority. And the aspect of authority has been authority's willingness to tell us, us in, as, as a group of a population, what we should do and shouldn't do. And and I think I, I took great issue with that. And I think I brought that into my career because I I kind of because I think there's a lot of assumption in being told what to do, right? It's like, well, um you're assuming that that's the right thing to do. And I think I bring that in, I brought that into my career too with clients. It's like, well, you're assuming that that's the right thing to do. Are we assuming too much? And therefore, um, um, there wasn't necessarily a willingness to either listen to an alternative view or accept an alternative view. And I'm wondering, is that something that, you know, is something that may be part of what is in it for you? Sometimes I'm not even sure that it's an alternative point of view. Um, I just think it's um, it's a willingness to explore a little bit deeper. And, you know, I'm sure sure we'll, we'll come on to it as, as it goes, but... Um, just the idea of kind of understanding the real problem and 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 speaking truth to um you know that problem that's in the room that nobody wants to talk about everybody knows that there's an issue and everybody knows that it's that it's a bigger issue but what we want to do is solve all the easy things around the periphery of it but nobody wants to get to the heart of it and kind of go but this is the worst pasta sauce on the market objectively you know we've we, we have fewer vegetables and more sugar um and that's either an issue or it's a strength but let's t talk about that as opposed to talking about the the new ways that you can use a sauce so for me it was always it's always been that it's always it's always been um can we talk about the unspoken issue in the room can we just speak can we speak truth to what people genuinely think about you? And then we can decide whether or not this is the time to solve it. Um, but otherwise, you know, we're going to spend all of our time dancing around it and we're never going to get to the heart. Right. So, Ed, how, how about for you? Uh, tell us about, you know, what sort of fuels your passion and uh, were there, is there things about agency life where, you're, where you found yourself being pretty ultimately dissatisfied with? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, obviously in a long-ish career, you know, it's gone through, the journey's gone through various cycles, um, you know, and when I started out, for me, it was just about learning and it was, you know, learning from people who I didn't even, for a while, I didn't even know there was a thing called strategy or planning. 
Yeah. Um, and and I and I think even to this day, I mean, a, a, a while back, I I taught at the University of Oregon and uh, in the in the big big communication school there, and talked to eight hundred students. And I asked them to raise their hand if they knew what account planning or strategy was. I think there were about ten hands raised, and that's in one of the biggest schools in the U.S. Um, so you know. <laughs> This is a discipline. That's and in Wyden and Kennedy's back door, or back yeah, door, backyard. Exactly. So, yeah, for me, it was first on out, um, it was really about learning. And then, um, you know, I, you know I, I, I was very lucky that I got into a situation where I happened to win a piece of business um, before my time, I think, <laughs> and got sort of promoted above my station. And I uh, was sort of forced to was to do a lot of scrambling and uh, you know really learning. I, so I was never really, it, I wasn't really in a position to sort of challenge the status quo because um, you know I didn't have the experience under my feet to sort of to to do that. And to, to be honest, I think a lot of what Steve's saying to me is it's 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 a confidence game, you know. And I think maybe agencies, you know, there's a famous story about Alan Brady Marsh and British Rail, with the equivalent of Amtrak over in the UK. You know, keeping this uh, you know a pitch. Where the the lobby area is an absolute mess, and the prospective client is kept waiting half an hour. And when they go into the uh, room for the pitch, they say, "Why do you keep us waiting half an hour? And why is it a terrible mess?" And they go, "Well, that's why you treat your customers." <laughs> that's great. I love that. No one's yeah. got the no one's got the guts to do that these days. Absolutely not. So yeah, there's way where strategists have a real tough time because they want to speak sort of truth to power, but at the same time. You need a lot of confidence to be able to say your pasta sauce sucks, um, and and you know some agencies have the credibility to do that, and a lot um, of them don't, unfortunately, and that I think compromises and frustrates the planners who believe that that's their job to be an objective voice of reason. Um, I you know I don't you know I, I've been fortunate enough that um, you know I did I did see a really big opportunity when I was at McCann. I set up something called Magic Hat, which was um, really, it was a sort of a, a SWAT team. And um, we were really sort of there to ad be agile and solve big client problems in interesting ways. And, um, you know, it was, you know, working with a big spirits brand and saying actually the most powerful asset you have is the music in your commercials because where the kids are is listening to music. So you need to do something with that music versus just make more ads, you know? And, you know, that ended up in us being able to bring a record deal to a major brand. Um, so that frust it wasn't really frustration. It was more like looking at opportunities that weren't being seized. Um, and then when I left that, I sort of found myself just being surrounded by creative people and working in creative agencies. So, um, it was always about the work, Steve. We um we talked about how we work today. I mean, I'm, you know, obviously a lot has changed. I mean, there's been dramatic change. Can you tell us about some of your thoughts on the way that we are choosing or being forced to work today? Yeah, and I think it's I think it's accelerated. I think the thing that we tend to forget is that um, you know, we we all think we're in the business of selling advertising, but that's not how the industry makes its money. We're actually in the business of selling the time it takes to make advertising. And that's great when there's a lot of money around. Um, but the second there isn't, 
Um, what everybody looks to do is is cut time. So I think you know one of the one of the big things that's happened is that you know in a bid to say, okay, we need to we need to cut the time in order to cut the cost in order to keep the client. It went from well, you don't have six days anymore to you know call a recruiter and recruit some people and and meet them and go and do some things with them. Why don't you do the social listening instead? We can talk to, we can hear from more people for less money in a fraction of the time if we go that way. And then from the social listening, you get to that point of, well, rather than commissioning that the whole time, why don't we run that the whole time? And then why don't we run an API that just automatically churns out creative off the back of it? And you end up in this weird volume game. So I do think that, you know, one of the, one of the biggest things that, that we're struggling with, and I think, Post-pandemic, um, we're seeing even more of this as we're working hybrid and trying to figure out how this works. Um, it's just that collapse of time. We're very, very good on knowing people's behavior. I think that we've lost quite a lot of understanding people's motivation. So I can tell you when people are shopping, when they buy, when they're browsing, when they're looking. I can give you the, the journey that they go through. Um, but quite often what I'm missing from the back end of that is, 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 the, is the motivation in the middle of it. And then the question becomes, though, um, that has sort of become the norm. And, and you know, doing this show and the guests, many of the guests I've had in the show, senior people who, who I've, I, had, I, had, I had hoped would, um, would endorse this point of view, that shit, we've got to get back to getting more time. The, none of them are endorsing it. There's, they're in essence accepting that that is a reality and that we now have to find ways of working within that reality. For example, I remember Tom Morton said that um, that the next sort of realm of, of, of strategy is not trying to understand how do we sort of compress a six-week process into 10 days, but about sort of rediscovering how do we get to great in 10 days. In other words, don't compress things completely change the way you approach things and just get it done faster. And and so for me, I'm like, okay, I kind of get that. There's a lot, a new generation of planners coming in and, you know, work is getting done. And I, I'm much, I mean, in, in many corners, there's a, a high level of dissatisfaction with it, but I'm not sure that it's, that there's a high level of dissatisfaction with the younger planners. And I'm not sure, and I'm, yeah, the outputs are very different than they used to be. Um, but I worry that it's sort of that Ed, it's sort of become the norm now. And I, I don't know if that's a bad thing or not. Yeah, I think it, I, I think actually it's quite hard to generalize when you really think about it because there's so many different relationships that agencies have with clients these days. And uh, you know, you have got some still very classic AOR relationships. And I think within those relationships, I think you have more freedom. Um, I think you are seeing clients saying, um, I kind of had enough of trying to make this work myself and I need to go back and find an agency to help me. And then I think you've got project relationships, which are becoming the sort of dominant form of the relationship where I think there is, it's, a, it's, it's really, a, it's really all organized around time, you know, within those sort of projects, you don't step outside of the boundaries. You don't say your product's terrible, go back to the drawing board. I find that kind of, you know, obviously is challenging. It's also kind of, 
there's a sort of sense of dissatisfaction in, in terms of that these projects they they don't necessarily there's no guarantee of a long-term relationship at the end of them um so i think agencies sometimes feel that they don't want to put extra skin into the game because there may be nothing to gain and i'm sort of convinced that we are going to see a sort of a turn back to people understanding the value of what an agency can bring them you know i think back to what steve said the sort of you know, there's a whole um, momentum build around creating a marketing machine, an automated marketing machine with APIs and AI um, that basically runs on autopilot. Um, and um, I, I think some people are pursuing that uh, quite aggressively. Um, and I think others may be questioning whether that's going to deliver them what they actually need. We'll be right back. Hi there, my name's James Herman, and I'm what's known as a distinctive asset, which is something that makes people think immediately of a certain brand, like the Golden Arches make people think of McDonald's or the Swoosh makes people think of Nike. When the most effective marketing and advertising people hear me, they think of the Master of Advertising Effectiveness brand. The Master of Advertising Effectiveness is a six-week online program in partnership with Walk where I'll give you a next-level understanding of how to make advertising that creates consistently better commercial results. One important ingredient is distinctive assets, like me. And me being here on this ad is one of the many reasons this campaign is the most effective advertising campaign in the world. Confused? You won't be when you become a master of advertising effectiveness. Get started at mae.academy. That's mae.academy. Now back to the show. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think agencies will make a choice. I think there's, um, you know, if you, you're, you're going to have to make your money somewhere. And if you decide that you want to make it on speed, then you're going to have to do it on volume. You're going to have to make as many pieces of content as you possibly can and automate it as far as you can and just go, however many channels you've got, we can fill them. There's almost endless media. We can give you almost endless content. And ultimately that plays to Google. They will say, well, why be paying agency fees? You can put it all into working media, just put it all into our media. And then we'll, um, you know, we'll give you the, we'll give you the creative free. Um, and then there'll be people that kind of say, okay, we, we want to have a value play within that. So yes, we can play the numbers game and and make you know cents per cents per thousand um, pieces of creative that we make, or we can play a we can play a different game as well. Um, we can play the game where we genuinely try to add value, where the, where the message is additive to the media. So I definitely think there's going to be that split between actually all that matters is you know the frequency and cadence with which you hit people. Um, and you you optimize a message within there and and something that says, well, actually, no, what we want to do is to make that that media work a little bit harder for you. And this is where it's worth the time and effort. Um, and I'm not sure that we're making that um, that choice consciously at the moment. Um, but I do th I do think it will come. I think we'll get to the point where we kind of go, OK, so at what point do we see strategy and great creative as additive? Um, and what are the projects that that where those work? You know, I take comfort in, when I look at um, one client that's been showcased a lot. It's been on the show, and we all are familiar with 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 uh, what McDonald's has been doing all around the world for the for the most part. 
And I take great comfort in the fact that McDonald's has now become um, an advocate for um, inventive qual, getting getting the agency folks out there, talking to people, bringing understanding of people's lives and um, and the strategy being so better informed by the fact that it's exposed to it's it's built on being exposed to real people, and that a major global brand like McDonald's is comfortable making decisions based upon just the feedback of a relatively small number of people. That to me is exciting because I think that becomes the the heart of planning is that idea of being exposed to what is real um, as opposed to just being knowledge, right? It's like like um, the 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 um, the planners at Wyden, the planners at Leo Burnett, going into the field, doing work with with great people like Steve Lacey at the Outsiders, uh, doing work with great shops here in the U.S. too, uh, it, it sort of inside shops, and then coming out with really rich, unexpected observations, and those leading to great creative ideas that then lead to refreshing the brand. I mean, that's that's the ideal I hope we could go back to. But as you said, Ed, those are tough to do on pitches. Those are tough to do on fast turnaround projects. They're better able to do that. You're better able to do that when you have an AOR relationship. McDonald's isn't farming out a project to a creative boutique. You know, they, they're working with giant agencies. Like, I think well, Eidner's a giant agency, or Leah Burnett. And they have a trusted relationship and a partnership with that agency. And there is transparency and there's honesty and there's openness and there is a willingness to understand the brand's problems. And there is an expectation that the agency will be there to help solve the client's problems. And that's, a, you know, it's in a way, it's a very traditional approach. Yes. yes. Uh, and something we've lost. And, and I think it shows the benefit of look, look you, you can, I mean, if you look at the, um, UK case study, you know, raise the arches, and um, you, you know you can see um, problems. I mean, when the sort of the long term effectiveness paper that they produced, you, you know, say, you know, they've had a history of challenges that they had to overcome, and they've also had foresight to um, anticipate the future legislative challenges that they're going to have. Um, so these are ten year long challenges. Yeah. Exactly. And and so that's a long-term relationship and long-term relationship of trust and honesty. And, um, you know, I think it is a bit of an anomaly, you know, it, to what we see today where, um, you know, there's a sort of a, a fast track pitch for a project, three agencies are involved, and then there's a sort of a brief and it's not transparent. I mean, the, the client's already decided what their problem is. They really aren't open to being challenged about it. And uh, you're off on a on a track to solve the problem that they believe exists. So yeah, I mean, I wish I wish <laughs> we were there were more people like McDonald's around. Um, but, but but I think that I think when we talk about compressing things, I I think when I look back at my career, um, getting out and talking to people, whether it was just done uh, in two days. Uh, not six weeks, even if I got out there for two days into the real world, it just shifted the way that I thought about a solution completely from from the more isolated sense of it uh, becoming too lingo-driven 
Yeah, I think one of one of the things that one of the things that struck me in the last, you know, literally in the last few days, and maybe it's, it's an obvious thing, is we're not really part of the digital generation. Um, the young planner today is a digital planner, you know, is part of the digital generation. And I think, in my surmise, and I may be incorrect in my assumption here, that um, there is a school of thinking that says people are living their lives digitally. You know, and if we look digitally, we are doing, you know, what our what our peers did twenty years ago when they went out and talked to people. We're doing that digitally, yeah, and, and and that's just the way the world has changed. Our generation, Generation Zs, or whatever, um, live an increasingly large portion of their lives in the digital world, and so so spending time understanding that. Um, is warranted. Now, I don't know whether I don't, I, I would love to know if as much rigor and, um, and interesting application is being applied to actually understanding people in the digital realm, um, versus just cutting and pasting quotes from. Yeah. But to Steve, to Steve's point earlier, it's like that, that gives you the what they're doing, but it doesn't give you an understanding of them or why they're doing what they're doing. I mean, that's what, that was what I was saying. If, you know, if, if, if there's a sophistication to the approach and, you know, we may be talking to people digitally, but, uh, you know, but we're doing it in really interesting ways. We may be doing text messaging. Um, you know, the, uh, I think, I think I would might get from a 25 year old planner some pushback. Saying we actually are finding out how the hows and the whys here, but we just we don't need to. We can do it <laughs> without actually going out to meet these people. There's a real difference between um, observing and engaging, and you can absolutely engage with people online. It's just a lot of what we do is we observe them through tools, and and we end up with relevance. And relevance is cheap. It's really easy to be relevant. You know, I look at your, I look at the data from your. Apple Watch, and I see that you didn't sleep very well, and I post you an ad for a pillow, and it is relevant, but it's not resonant. And I think McDonald's is a great example of them understanding the um, the power of resonance and saying, "Great, you know, we we're there. We understand the people. Now let's not just give them something that's a relevant offer to them." but something that makes them feel seen and heard and recognized um, and that they look at and they go, ah, that does feel like it's like it's for me um, as opposed to just being something that is kind of relevant to the situation that I'm in. So there's definitely um, a piece there. I do think it's a, you know, the, the idea of um, what if we're wrong? What if, what if we've made some assumptions and we've hammered them home and we've seen some results on them and we've we've assumed that what's happening is is as a result of what we've said as opposed to just being out there um what if we're not tackling real problems what's the long-term consequences remember jim carroll always saying you know the seeds of a brand's destruction are sown at the height of its fame I remember Dan Hill, when he was on the show, he's a CSO at, at Wyden and Kennedy. He brought up uh, what I thought was a, a, a great point, and it's sort of a risk for planning, which is his sense was that planning was becoming or risks becoming too distinct as a department, that we are 
we're trying to become experts in so many things that the risk is that we become almost an island uh, within the broader team. And that's not just within the agency, but overall, that we are too separated from creative and that there's a big risk of that happening. And um, uh, his sense, that, that was a big worry for him, that we're, be, we're trying to chase every shiny thing and we're losing touch with what our real role is which is is to identify opportunity and to help uh, elevate uh, great ideas and creativity, uh, Ed. Is that something that, that you would agree with, or, or what, what do you think about that? It does happen. The, the strategy departments get pulled and pushed in different ways, and as clients, you know, uh, you know, start to, to pull out assignments, so we want you on social media, or can you send a qualitative so before you before you know it, you've got a multifunctional strategy department doing different things and getting pulled in different directions. And I've heard it from a very famous agency that uh, this led to uh, a lot of challenges based on you know what they'd expected their strategy department to be delivering in terms of their relationship with creatives. But over time, that um, the the strategy department got pulled in different different directions. I want to go back to the consequences thing. I think. Uh, a little bit because I think it's a really important point. Um, and, and, I, and I would say one of the, one of the struggles I, I feel that the industry hasn't really solved for here is what is the multiple advantage of doing things the right way? I, if I follow a McDonald's route and I have a long-term agency relationship and I develop brilliant creative what is the multiple I am generating as a result? Right. So what what is what is what do you mean by the multiple? Does it grow my sales two x? Does it grow my sales one half x? Does it do it quickly? Does it does it? What does it take? I.e., on the opposite of that would be what is the consequence of not doing things the way McDonald's does? Yes. And is that is that consequence dramatic enough for me to lose my job? And I think that's the part of the problem is that brand work tends to take a lot of time. Um, and then you've got this of uh, paradox, which is that CMOs don't really have a lot of time. So to do something over the long term, you need a special type of person and you need to buy in up the senior levels of management uh, who can appreciate long-term versus short-term. And so I think a big problem with our industry is that we haven't sold the advantages or the disadvantages of not doing things correctly, of not doing great work, um, because people, people, people are happy with the status quo. And if the status quo can be automated and the status quo can be cheap um, and the status quo doesn't involve expensive strategists uh, and there is no consequence of doing that, then that's the way things will go. You know, what's interesting about that, though, I, I totally agree with you. Um, but what's really interesting about it is that when you look at McDonald's or you look at Cadbury or you look at Snickers, those campaigns worked immediately, and they were designed to work immediately. They, they were in essence a a, um, a blend of brand and performance. Yep, they were they're re they're all uh, they're all retail examples. Yeah, but I, I would I would agree that um, it, they do the long and short. You know, they, they, yes. it, it, and the 
beauty is that the clients understand the long and short. You know, not just, yep. not just, you know, we're going to sell out and forget about it. But we are, I mean, you look at Cadbury, the Cadbury case, it's a great case too, you know, where, you know, we had, I mean, it's really interesting when you say, well, you know, we had this gorilla, <laughs> Phil <laughs> Collins gorilla in a suit that, you know, everyone, everyone in the creative world lauded as the most fantastic piece of advertising that had ever been created. It was heaped with praise. They did not create a number two. There was only it was only a one hit wonder, and then the brand was sort of with uh, the new agency was sort of then had to work out how it was going to do something different and do it for the long term. Come up with a platform that was powerful and enduring that could work to deliver short term results as well as long term results. And so I think. I think again, that's about an agency relationships. About it's about discipline. It's about marketing discipline. It's about um, yeah. And, and that was Fallon who did the gorilla. Who did the gorilla? Fallon London at the time did the gorilla. Now the gorilla because we had we had Cadbury on the show and we went through. It's a great great episode. And and they said that the gorilla killed it. Right as you said, Ed, there was huge positivity, but then it derailed them culturally because they they felt that they were having to chase fame without a strategy fame became their strategy and they yeah. lost they lost their direction as a result of that and sales began to drop now there were lots of corporate issues going on there was a merger issue etc but but absolutely and then uh, i think it's vccp uh came up with the glass and a half as being sort of the center stage and that work has just been has been beautiful uh work over the last uh, four or five years other, you know the other thing about that work as well is it's just very interesting and i think i think you probably talked about it on the show but there's just sort of when you're trying to create a hit you know it, it there's a sort of a drama to it and it and it's got to be sort of there's a wow whereas this cabri work is sort of quiet you yes know? um and you know it's not trying too hard and it's not trying to like be you know it'll be talked about but it's 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 quietly charming it, it works in a very quiet way and you know that sometimes seems to go against what a lot of creative people might be considering creative um but at the same time we know it's actually very effective i think one of the big differences that we have um is that there's an arrogance to having bought an audience so every time we go out, we we buy eyeballs and we say, we've bought you, therefore you have to look at our stuff. Um, I'd be quite like you to share it with other people. And every other form of modern media doesn't buy an audience, it builds one. doesn't matter whether you're on TikTok or Instagram or YouTube or YouTube Shorts. What you want people to do is hit the, the subscribe and the like, the, the subscribe, follow and like button because you want more people to tune into your content the next week. So you're acutely aware of having to entertain, maybe inform the audience that you have and of the need to build that audience. Whereas we treat them as entirely disposable because every time we need a million people to see something, we just buy another million people. Um, and I think that leads to that idea of we've got a million people, we're going to show them something. And they may never come back. They're only ever going to see it once. So make it flashy. Um, and yet every influencer, every creator, every showrunner that I 
speak to is trying to do exactly the opposite. They're trying to build an audience of their own, not to buy somebody else's. And I think we're way behind there. Um, because that, that idea of there are a fleeting audience that we've bought, we've only got 15 seconds with them ever, and then they're going to disappear as opposed to, I have an audience that I've built that I'm going to keep with me for the next four or five years. Um, so how do, how do I grow along with their interests? Is a, it's just a fundamentally different way of looking at things. Um, and I do think we're a good 10 or 15 years behind the world um, of, of, of entertainment and influence and creator when it comes to that. I like Steve's point about like the audience idea, you know, that the, you're buying an audience versus you have an audience. It's like, well, you know, Red Bull, I think is, you know, one of the most underrated brands ever. Um, when you, I mean, just maybe they've never very, very rarely produced a creative piece of advertising. My God, are they in the content business? Are they in the sponsorship business? Is their brand visible from an, from an awareness point of view and from a content point of view and from a thematic? I mean, they are a machine in, a, in, a, in an interesting way because, you know, they're, they are one of the most successful sports teams in the history of sports and the Formula One team. Um, and then you have some a brand like Yeti, yeah. you know, which is, you know, no one's, no one's writing about their amazing creative, but they're building an audience with their films and their content. Uh, in a you know in a way that not at this extreme level like Red Bull is, but they they know. I think it's a confidence thing. You, know, you can see those brands who know who they are, know who they want to be, or know who they should be, or um, understand that they're not. You know, the McDonald's is like we. You know, people really actually like us. If we if you read the media, people hate us. But you shouldn't read the media to go out and talk to people and understand what they like about us. And they do actually like us. So let's not let's not channel the media's perspective into our brand. Let's go and find the positives that people find in us, rather than chasing the challenge of avoiding the negatives. Obviously, not all brands are in the privileged position that a Yeti or a Patagonia or an Apple or a Nike is, but um, it does sort of demand that, you know, why aren't people asking themselves some fundamental Cadbury-like questions? You know, why are we in business? What are we in business to do? You know, what, what's our origin story that allows us to link that truth uh, from the past to today's reality? I don't think enough of that work it work is being done and if you do and if the beauty is it's that's the beauty for me of strategy the, the power of strategy is um that you can start to answer those questions the problem is that creative advertising is becoming a thinner than a slice and therefore what strategists can do as far as solving those big strategic issues is more and more limited it is Steve Walls. Uh, he's at Moon Rabbit, uh, based in Zurich, Switzerland, and Ed Cotton, brand consultant at Inverness Consulting in Brooklyn, New York. Awesome to have both of you guys, uh, Steve and Ed. Uh, thanks for coming on. Um, I'd love to, to think that we'll do this again in the in the future. Well, it's been great. Thank you so much. Yeah, really great. And um, we'll see everyone on the next episode.